There are five language groups that make up the Ma Nation of which the Gadabinud were one. Each of the language groups was named after the sound that their language made. The Gadabinud were the King Parrot speakers. Their closest uh, language group to them were the Gulijan, which is named after the sound of sand running through your fingers. The Kirei Rarung to the west, the Jagad Rarung to the northwest, and further west, the Darwad Rarung. When those five language groups came together, they formed the Marang, the hand. And when they came together, they formed the Wart Marang, the unbreakable fist of the fighting Gundich Mara. Thank you, Dr. Jack Pascoe. They're beautiful. Um, welcome to country and, uh, and also so much, so much storytelling. My name's Richie Cornish. I'm a freelance writer. I am. I work with the Age newspaper. I write about food, but um, not about restaurants or anything like that. About where food actually comes from and what it means culturally. Welcome, welcome everyone. Welcome people who've come from far. Welcome people who are in town. Welcome people who've come from interstate and those overseas as well. Um, uh, today we are. Winter Wild is an amazing festival. It is uh, just this, this somehow in the, in the, after all the bushfires, the local people got together and said, let's celebrate life, but let's do it in winter when it's a bit safer. And they got together and they said, let's have party, let's put on music, let's put on good food. And there's one woman in town, Liz Waters says, let's have some really good talks. And she got local people together to talk about something uh, this community is passionate about. And that is the concept in Australia of reconciliation. And every time we put on this festival, we come back together again and take a pulse of what's going on. And as we've seen recently, uh, the Prime Minister Albanese um, gave a little speech at the Gama Festival and said, yeah, let's do it. Let's, um, let's uh, talk about uh, a voice to parliament. Let's, let's, further this, uh, let's further this on. So we're in a process now. It's not just for the last couple of years, I think we've just been talking about it. There seems to be movement. And uh, today, what we'd like to see at the end of today is perhaps us as a group understanding more about why we need to be in this process, but also what language we can take out of this. Because uh, this process will involve a lot of change for people, a lot of change in understanding, a lot of change in, uh, in, in people's identity of who they are. Because in, So this process will actually cause some, let's say, scabs to be removed and some blood to be let. And I think what we're going to do is look, look, at, look why that has to happen and some language to come out of it at the end of the day. Um, uh, the passing of the, um, of the great um, Archie Roach uh, just reminds me of uh, that beautiful album. Remember that album, um, Na um, Native uh, Charcoal Lane, and that song Native Born. When it first came out, I just I was a young bloke, and what stuck with me is the spirit is in the land. The spirit is in the land. And that's where we're going to start off today. We're going to start off with looking at country, caring for country. And to do so today, we've got uh, with us um, Dr. Jack. Dr. Jack, you and man who grew up in this country here before leaving to study environmental science at Deakin University and then completed a PhD of fire ecology and bio biocultural landscapes. And Dr. Jack is a conservation research manager at the, Con at the Conservation Ecology Centre and a research fellow at the University of Melbourne. Thanks for your time this morning, Dr. Jack. I like calling you Dr. Jack. Give him a round of applause just for turning up. It's Sunday morning. 
the next, uh, the other presenter for this this part of the talks this morning, uh, you may have heard he did a very, uh, very uh, transformative uh, lecture for Radio National. Uh, two years ago, was it now? Two years ago, it's been repeated several times. And that's Associate Professor, Professor Michael Sean Fletcher, and he's a descendant of the Wiradjuri people and a geographer interested in the long-term human environment trans- interactions. Michael's recent research has a particular emphasis on how Aboriginal people have shaped the Australian landscape and how Aboriginal knowledge needs to be meaningfully meaningfully incorporated into landscape management to tackle many of the environmental challenges we face today. He's Director of the Research Capability at the Indigenous Knowledge Institute and Associate Dean, Indigenous, in the Faculty of Science at the University of Melbourne. Thank you for coming. Good morning. Michael, can we just let's let's go back. Can you paint us a picture of what um, parts of pre-colonial Australia looked like? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, and thanks for having us. And I'd like to recognise we're on unceded country, so it's really important that we're talking about country, you know, and, and what country was like. And I've been reflecting. I just sort of need to think about where we come from and our perspective on things. And I, I often start. I've been starting off a few talks I do lately with two photos of the same building, and it's the Leaning Tower of Pisa, right? And you can look from, at the Leaning Tower of Pisa one way, and it's leaning. You look at another way, and it's dead straight, right? We, as people, look at objects pretty much from a singular view. We've got, and that's what we call our epistemology, or our worldview. Right? And we sometimes convince ourselves that that's the totality of everything. That's the entirety. So if you're looking at that same building from two different ways, you'll either identify problems or you won't. You'll either catch something or you'll miss something. Okay? And it's really ignorance just to, to consider your singular view the totality of everything. Another analogy I, I highlight is shining a light on an object with a lamp. Right? Just like the moon. We only see one side of the moon. We'd be ignorant to think that we understand the totality of it. So I think it's interesting to recognise, and that's a part of truth-telling, I think, is recognise and tell the truth about who you are and where you come from and what your view is. Right? So that, and that's important when we think about country. You know? And now Australia is incredibly diverse. We've got cool temperate rainforests in the southwest of Tasmania, tropical rainforests in the north, what you might call desert today, which Aboriginal people don't really consider as desert. Uh, all through, tallest forests in the world, tallest flowering plant in the world, everything. Okay, and it's really diverse. And to contemporary culture today, have a particular view about landscape. You, know, you might look at these rainforests up in here and you might think of a word called wilderness, for example. Or you might look at the rainforests of southwest Tasmania and call it a wilderness. You look at a farmland and you'll call that a, a cultural landscape or you'll call it a managed landscape. If we rewind the clock, this continent was radically different. Now I, I work with Aboriginal people, you can, you can talk to Aboriginal people, you can understand what country was like, but let's face it, white Australia doesn't do that very well. So I spend my time looking scientifically at landscape change. I take cores out of lakes, bogs and swamps. <clears throat> and I can reconstruct the past. I can get a window through time into the past. And I've done this from the top end in Darwin, right down the east coast of Australia. About to start somewhere in Western Australia, we haven't got that far. Right through to here, we're doing this out this way uh, on this country. And right through uh, those regions. And I go back, in some places I go back a million years, right? Now, the 
the biggest change that this landscape has seen, the biggest change universally, there's not one site where I haven't seen this out of the you know, hundred sites that I've done in the last 12,000 years, since the last ice age, was a British invasion and the change of landscapes. You might think, oh, okay, that's because we, we logged things and we forested things. That's true. But all of that stuff you look today in the bush, let's think of uh, Gippsland. Who's ever been to Gippsland? Hands up, been to Gippsland? Uh, and it's all bush, isn't it? You just drive for miles and miles and miles of bush, 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 bush. And you think, oh, that's wilderness, you know? And there's bushfires, of course there's bushfires there, it's the bush, okay? Go back just before the British invasion, there were half the amount of trees in that country and there were no bushfires. And that's not just me talking to people, that's me analysing the fossil record. The first bushfires that country experienced in the last 2,000 years were 10 years after the massacres of Gunnar people. Yeah? And this is a repeated story everywhere. Okay? It changes a bit. Who's, who's heard of the Tarkine? Hands up. What do they call that? The Tarkine? Thomas. Right? I worked there. You can read this, it's all published in Scientific Literature, if you don't want to believe me. That rainforest in the upper reaches, the parts that we've analysed, is less than 160 years old. What was there before were grasslands. That was even observed by white people. You know, the first white dude, Helen Hillier, popped up the top of a mountain, looked at that, saw 10,000 hectares and called it the Surrey Hills. Who's been to England? Hands up. Who's seen the Surrey Hills? Grassy, grassy, grassy. Called it the Surrey Hills. Now when you go there, rainforest. And we're defending this as a wilderness. Michael, just, just, let's go back. Let's look at, as a scientist, you're drilling, getting a machine and you're drilling a core. So you're pulling up like a sample of seeing those ice cores that Pete, that scientist. What does it look like? What are, you, what are you looking for and what are you seeing in those cores? Yeah, great question. So depending on where we are, we use different kinds of machinery. I might have a big floating platform that I have to helicopter in or whatever and we send, I think the deepest lake we've caught is about 80 metres of water you know, so we've got to use technical machinery to pull this stuff out sometimes I'm just standing on a bog you know, digging out mud and you pull out a column of, of mud now if you think every day there's stuff blowing around I'm not going to try and make you guys paranoid but right now you're breathing in pollen, charcoal, dust, everything it's always floating around the atmosphere and that's a product of everything that's around us and that's, that'll have a signature that lands on the ground so I can come back in a thousand years and tell you what was growing around here if I find a place where it's still preserved. And that's usually in swamps and lakes and bogs. So we pull that out. And in particular, I look at pollen, which is plants, and charcoal, which is fire. I use a whole bunch of other things as well, but relevant for this. And each, really, it's laborious, expensive, time-consuming work. You take the core, which costs whatever and takes a lot of energy, then you slice it you know, half centimetre intervals all the way up, and you then use chemicals to extract the component you're looking at, analyse it, and that tells you what was then. <clears throat> Go up half a centimetre, that's forward in time, and all the way up. And you can then piece together landscape change. And you can see, visually, you see the British invasion on the environment, and you see sediment change. But we can actually get in there and actually see what was happening and how they and so you can identify the different pollens to identify the different vegetation. Mm, yep. Okay. And the charcoal. We can analyse the charcoal. It's pretty amazing. It's like science fiction, really. You, know? um, you can analyse the charcoal and work out what temperature the fire was burning. You, know? you can analyse the charcoal and understand what the plant was you know, by using carbon isotopes or just morphology or anything. And you can get a really, really detailed picture.
So we've we've, we've got this we've got this um, uh, this um, impact this impact event that that is what's called a black line in the sand. Um, and we've got this line in the sand. Um, we've got the, the line in the sand. And so, what? What was? What was? The, what was going on before that? What was going on before that on the land that made uh, that, that changed? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, um, <clears throat> and it's not as simple as this one thing. Like, if there's a map, and if anyone ever looks, just look up pyrogeography of Australia, and this is it's almost like one of those psychedelic maps, you know, like. Um, and the different kinds of fire regimes on country here in this country are unfathomable. You say open the jack. It's like just so country needs different kinds of management. When you so, say fire, fire regime, what's fire that? Regime. What's so, that? Uh, how often? How hot? A fire occurs, what kind of plants are there, those kinds of things. It's, the fire regime is, is the frequency, intensity of fire and, and the kind of plants that make up that fire regime. So depending on where you are, right, you have to manage different ways. So Aboriginal people, for and I'll, I'll take you back, I'll take you back 1.4 million years when we went, Homo sapiens weren't even around. Homo sapiens were about 200,000 years old. We're Australopithecus, I think it was, Australopithecus robustus. Lucy, you know, anyone heard of Lucy? You know, Australopithecus. That's when humans started using fire, right? By the time Homo sapiens came around 200,000 years ago, we were expert fire users. Not only expert fire users, it had shaped our very evolutionary trajectory. The fact that we've got this huge brain, I'll get to the point in a minute. Yeah, no, I'm with you, I'm with you. The fact that we've got this huge brain, right, which is the most energy-intensive organ in the body, right, and we're the only species to have unlocked that limitation on that evolutionary trajectory because we started cooking food and getting more energy out of our food. The fact that we got out of the trees, the fact that we've got flat teeth now, the fact that we've got shorter guts, all this sort of stuff is because of our association with fire, right? So <clears throat> fast forward to 65,000 years ago, fire organism, the fire, a fire organism, you know, humans and fire inextricably linked. We still use it today. Who drove here in a car? Mastery of fire, okay? Unless you've got a Tesla, I guess, you know? <laughs> Mastery of fire, right? We're still where the fire organism. Fire organism rocks into us into the Australian landmass at least 65,000 years ago, maybe older, and starts getting to work. And why do we manage landscapes? And hopefully, we get to this idea of management soon. We want a safe, predictable, and resource-rich environment. Every human does it. Yeah, and you use the tools at hand. The tools at hand for Homo sapiens back then, which turned out to be Aboriginal people today, that cultural lineage, was fire, and we set about working working country. And we've got evidence in Tasmania, for example, of, uh, you can only call it work, for 40,000 years, the natural state of landscapes was held out and a desired state of more grassiness and lower fire was maintained for 40,000 years. Okay? And then within 10 years of that removal, the place radically changes and turns into the Tarpana wilderness. Yeah? <clears throat> that's intensive work. So that's people getting to work, <coughs> managing landscapes, creating green pick uh, for animals, keeping your resources close, Aboriginal people were just wandering around aimlessly, we were managing country so that we had a supermarket around us. You know? And that diversity of, of landscape around us is now lost, and that's the key reason that we are losing we're the fastest or second fastest rate of biodiversity on Earth, is because now we just let it all go until just one big forest, one big farmland, there's not that diversity. We're losing that diversity. So what Aboriginal people were doing in terms of fire, and we're doing a whole lot of things, we they managing waterways to, you know, you guys know, you're near the fish traps here, aren't you? You know, close enough. Close enough. 
there's all sorts of management, but in terms of fire, Aboriginal people are burning, you know, every day or, you know, in the right time of year, not waiting for the forest fire danger index to hit the right level, not putting in hazard reduction plans a year in advance and hoping that it, that week in autumn that everything's ready to go. They were being reflexive and, and capable on the ground. Not doing presentations when the day was right for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's, let's, let's go to that now because we're talking about regime, Jack. Um, you've your hands on doing this here, right here, um, where we are now. No, not not on the senior sit centre, but it could be about out um, at Cape Otway. Tell us what does it, what does these fires look like? Because we are, you know, we have these monumental fires: eighteen thirty nine, nineteen thirty nine, nineteen sixty six. We've got the uh, black. Uh, we've got um, Ash Wednesday. We've got Black Friday. We've got these. It, it, it almost like this is we have this. Um, pyrophobia in, a, in, in the Australian psyche. What does a fire look like in this country when managed? Yeah, so we um, probably got into it about a decade ago in fire from a, uh, an interest in regenerating forests at Cape Otway. And who's we? The, uh, the organisation that I work for, Conservation Ecology Centre, um, we'd watched the Manigam woodlands effectively collapse on us. Um, with uh, you know, a range of issues, but largely koala overgrowsing. And the reason that we wanted to reapply fire was because there was no germination of the, the next generation of trees. So we thought if we were to do that, it would encourage the seed bank. Um, what we learnt along the way was that didn't work. The seed bank had degraded to the point where we didn't get a mass germination. Um, but it did allow us to replant physically the, the plants back into the ground. Along the way, we, we were working with the Country Fire Authority, who were very, very interested in reducing fuels. That was their, their thing. You look like, that, that's, like that, that's a euphemism. Uh, well, Mike and I talk about this a bit, but I reckon if we stop calling plants fuel, we might uh, go a little closer to understanding what it is. OK. Um, but, uh, and, and, you know, we talk about dead fuels. Now, Uncle Max, you would have known Uncle Max, wouldn't you have known Uncle Max? I don't believe I have. Um, but Uncle Max would always get very cross when people spoke about uh, sticks as dead wood because how could it be dead wood if it gives you fire? There's something there, isn't there? Anyway, so if we think of the landscape a little bit differently, it helps us to understand it. But, um, you know, the Country Fire Authority in teaching me, and they certainly taught me my skills, I guess, to begin with, was, you know, you put a black edge in on the leeward side and you let it rip so you can all go home and have a cup of coffee at five. Just break that down for the... Uh, just break that again. Yeah. Black edge on the leeward yeah, side. so you basically put in a nice, safe black edge so you light it on the side the way the, the wind is, is blowing to so that it can't get out. But like, like we're using like a, like a propane like drip torch, drip torch yeah, something like that, yeah. Okay. Just remember that if you're doing this at home. <laughs> yeah, and then they'd ring it up and it would get the desired result. We'd remove some of the understory fuel and mid-story fuel. And it's on the other side of the wind, so it's, it's, uh, so it's, it's uh, the wind's coming, Running. the fire's going that way and the wind's going that way. And, and it's your edge off and okay. come around and let it go. Okay, you come around and let it go. That's how you'd say it too, and then you'd go after what was a nice clean burn. Okay, again, a euphemism. Um, you've been polite. Clean burn meaning? Uh, most of the fuel had been removed. Okay, most of the biomass bio had yeah. been removed, okay. Um, and it did work. But we probably unleashed a few monsters in the process okay. and um, did a bit of damage. So it, uh, having hot fire is no good for the soil. Um, it's not good for plants. It tends to unlock uh, seed of particular types of plants in the seed bank and favour things like uh, acacias and peas, which... Um, 
if you drive as many places in the outways that you can drive through areas where agencies have been burning and see a really thick understory, and that's largely due to that unlocking of the, the seed bank of a particular cohort of plants. So it's a particular temperature. So some of these seeds are reacting to different temperatures. So so that's that CFA style, but not criticising CFA. They do a wonderful job. Um, but but uh, this has been recorded. Um, <laughs> Um, so we just say, and so the temperature of those fires are burning at. How hot are we talking about? Uh, no, that's a good question. I, I, what, 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 Mark? What are those? What are those buttons getting up to? So, I mean, we, we've measured temperature in the soil um, at about five centimetres below, and they, you know, that, yeah, something like that. And you know, the, the temperatures can spike around seventy or eighty degrees. The fire is obviously considerably hotter than that. Seventy eighty degrees—that's going to kill life. That, that, yeah, basically, that, that, wildfires yep. get extremely hot. Though. Yeah, real proper bushfires um, can sterilise soil in places. And, and if you go through even a planned burn, you'll see those scars of white uh, ash. Yeah, um, which is where some often fire has gotten into some real heavy timber. Yeah, and then basically sterilise that piece. Of, and that, that was against Aboriginal law to have that type of white ash on the ground because it meant the fire had been too hot, hadn't been moving through the country in the right way. I'm losing the thread of my yarn. No, 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 I've got, I've got, we've got white ash. We're talking about we're temperature. Talking yep, about yep. Temperature. Yeah. We were also talking about... And, right, so we'd unleashed the monsters and we thought, well, I mean, I was also privileged enough to be learning from different elders across the country and I thought, well, I think we can, we can do this better. And I guess uh, we still do CFA burns. One of the, the things that we have to keep in mind and that Michael's just talking to, we're not living in the cultural landscape of, of the Ma people. We have extraordinarily high plant loads um, where the country didn't have, right? So we can't go and apply traditional fire regime off the bat because those types of vegetation uh, don't respond to really low intensity fire conditions. It's very hard to get them to light because on the ground there aren't the fine plants on the ground to carry that fire. So they tend to burn in extreme conditions and they then carry the fire from the ground up into the trees and cause cause these monsters. So we have to sometimes have an intervention burn or we can do it mechanically to remove some of that mid-story, encourage the grasses. And a lot of this is about grass. Grass is really the key to carrying Indigenous cultural small, low fires that trickle around in the understory and, um, uh, I guess, open up the spaces between tussocks so that herbs and medicine plants can grow. And that's sort of what we're after. And really, as opposed to directing the fire, by burning an edge off the leeward side and letting it go, we let the fire move through country where it needs to go. And the fire will travel into the areas that have, for instance, in the tussocks, the most uh, dead fuel, um, and it will burn its way through those patches of country. And it, and it won't go into areas that have been burnt recently because the accumulation of dead fuel isn't there. So we've painted two pictures. We've looked at those uh, the the fires that the um, fire management, uh, colonial fire management systems, and looked at a, a, a hybrid version. Michael, what does a, tra- a, a like a really traditional burn look like? What talk to us about the people involved, the times of the day, the weather conditions, what people are looking for, the story, some of the stories that we know about them. Well, I mean, Jack's probably the, the expert in this space, but um, <clears throat> it's, it's interesting. A contrast you draw there, I said that humans have evolved with fire, and one little group of humans lost that, you know, and that's Northwest Europe, because of the whole place-based things there, right? So now, and it was very appropriate, the kind of management that came out of Europe, for Europe. The issue is it's been translocated across the earth, 
And with that is the perspective, it's the leaning tower on the wrong side. So now, if you think about our fire agencies, they're paramilitary organisations. They've got containment lines, sergeants, attack crews, and it, it's essentially fighting a war on arguably the most essential thing on this country. You know, And it's always, the picture you always see, uh, high-vis, um, masks, you know, really brave people and brave people combating really dangerous situations. And yet, you're always showing this image of conflagration or danger, yeah? Whereas anyone you talk like I've done work on what does healthy country mean to Aboriginal people, right? And you think, oh, it means low weeds that are... Within 10 minutes, you're talking about family and you're talking about people being on country. And cultural boom that I've done with Mother North, kids are there, you know, right there with them. Walking on the ground a couple of minutes later because it was cool, you know? It was that cold. And you're, you're about crops, but, you know... <laughs> And they're just setting the pandanas up like they're firecrackers, you know? And there's all this ash flying around and like that, and parents are sitting there, you're just casual with it, you know? Like, it's it's not a prescriptive way that it looks, but it's just that relationship, you know? And, and it's it's a friend, and it's a thing that you shouldn't be scared of. And kids are doing it. And kids as young as my kids, you know, five and six, run around lighting stuff, you know? Because, as Jack really eloquently put up, put up there, if you change the fuel structure, the fires aren't going to get away from you, you know? But if you've got this, what, what are we calling it? We're not calling it fuel, biomass. <laughs> if you've got the stuff we have there that you drive through, you know, and that gets dry and burns, you know, you would, you would run, you know? It's danger, you know? So it's, it's, it, it looks like a whole lot of different things, but it's always involving community and family, you know? Or if not, there's some strict protocol around why, and there might be some reasons that people are doing this. But it, it does not look like fear and, and, and frightenedness and, and danger. It looks right, doesn't it? Yeah. What's your experience, Jack? Well, well I mean, in terms well, I was talking about relationships, and I think one of the things that we don't talk about enough is the actual, we, we talk about this Aboriginal kinship with the land, but don't maybe think about what that means to Aboriginal people, is the land is the mother, right? Is the mother, and you wouldn't put a hot fire across the skin of your mother, like you would protect the mother's skin. So if you think about that and you've you brought community in, people will respect the earth like she is family. And if you do that, then you can walk across the skin because if I remember... You've done that already, mate. Uh, I've done it numerous times. <laughs> by the same token, I think the agencies here are working really beautifully at the moment to try and improve things. Um, and, for instance, we're working the Carlisle Heathland, which is a beautiful piece of the world. Where, where's this? Where's the Carlisle Heathland? Western flank of the ridge. Okay. It's a, a bit of sandy country, lots of xanthoria, no grass trees, so I won't speak in Latin. Um, and uh, thinking really deeply and with yeah. Indigenous partners and researchers about how uh, they can do things better over the next decade in that patch of country. So... Um, Things have been done wrong, and things will continue to be done wrong. But uh, there's a genuine uh, need and interest in changing, I think, from the agencies before you know, the article becomes Jack Bash's the agencies again. I'll pick up on that. That's a really great point. Ah, uh, yeah. I echo the point. This is no critique of the people doing the work. They're reflecting the cultural view and the paradigm, the management that's been laid out. Yep. Not critique the person. You know, it's, it, they're very admirable and brave and trying to do the right thing. This is about what are we doing as a society and a culture and the way that we do these things. And I'll touch on this thing about management. You're, you're bang on. I mean, 
how many people think about their family and say, oh, I'm going to manage my family? I'll make this one too. But how many, uh, how, many, how many of us actually do that? We don't. You know? there, are pro- there are programs yeah. now for that, yeah. No, I mean, it's actually really simple. Right? Contemporary society locks old people away and gets them managed by other people. It's really reflective of this deep issue I'm trying to talk about. Is we don't. We care for our family, you know? And I've been really reflecting on this word land management. I mean, and to me, it just encapsulates everything. We, we don't manage land. We've got to care for the land. I mean, it's, when it's all said and done, everything that we depend on comes from country. You know, I'm, you know, for it might be Spain for our oranges or whatever, da, 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 but we all depend on this, yet we treat it like it's a production machine or something we need to manage or something we need to control, right? And that dictates a kind of action, you know? It dictates a, a relationship that is subord- subordinating, sometimes abusive, you know? Re- very rarely caring and loving, you know? And it's that's a real profound shift in the way that you actually think. If you actually think about caring for country, not managing country, then that brings a whole lot of other kind of obligations and reciprocal relationships. Michael, it also, that'll, that'll also bring in an identity shift for um, for Western colonial thinking because uh, under under Western thinking we have dominion over plants and animals, um, which means that there's a hierarchy. Uh, so that's part of the of the CFA. Everywhere you go, they've got the hierarchical system because someone's master. But uh, this is another way of thinking that is different to that. It's one of power. It is. It's power. It's born out of the kind of pseudo-religion, you know, and it's even carried through to the post-Enlightenment period, the Enlightenment fellows, and I was, was actually born out of a desire to, to debunk and remove the dogma of religion, but it carried through one central tenet, that we are separate from the world around us. And we still battle it today. My daughter Isla here, I still remember her, you know, having to convince her that we're uh, animals. We're not animals, Daddy. Yeah, we are. Now she gets it. You know, we're animals. But we sort of, we don't think like that, do we? We're this thing that's separate and everything else is there to serve us. Now, I'm not saying we all sit back and go, you know, start, you know, turning into whatever, but, you know, actually understanding your place and the, the relationships that we have with everything brings in a bit more care. You probably won't throw that bit of rubbish in the bin because you're not uh, in the gra- on the ground because you know it's going to end up in a whale's mouth or something in the ocean. You're just more care because you actually... Okay. Michael, I was with a friend of mine. Uh, she, she's um, she's um, uh, from Europe, uh, like me, but she's been learning with the Larrakia women in Darwin how to burn, and, and then she started making this little fire in a backyard. Not big, about 15 acres that she's burning um, a little bit of time, and she made a little fire, no bigger than a golf ball. What are you doing? I'm just letting all the insects and all the birds and stuff know it's time to get out, getting time to do that. Oh, so that's what she'd learned. That actually the process wasn't about burning. It was actually the process was all about the, a communication. Uh, the, there was there was something going on there that was a lot more just the, than the, just the management. It was uh, this this much bigger thing. Now you're doing it all right. You, you don't want to stand still on the edge of the fire because everything's going to crawl up your legs. You know you're doing it all right. Yeah. It's moving too quick, or you're doing a line, yeah. right? So if you think about the shape of the fire, if you're lighting a line of fire. There's only, what's that, 180 degrees? I'm not good at maths, yeah? But if you do a, a circle, a dot, they can go in any single direction away from the fire, right? And then if you start putting other lines of fire, you have converging lines of fire, where the hell does everything go? So if you're doing dots, and you might do multiple dots across a landscape during a day, they can go anywhere. And up your leg is one of their favourites. But that's when you know you're doing a reasonable job. 
Okay. Talk to me more about. Talk to me more about. Um, I think that the term is is it mosaic, but mosaic. So I think, and look, you've got to think of this on multiple scales too. So you've got a huge landscape and you've got a lot of country and there's not a lot really of people managing country anymore. Uh, I mean, black, white, brindle, there's not a lot of people that manage our country. But um, you're going to have age classes is one of the ways that fire scientists talk about it. So different times since fire. But I guess the... The more interesting way of looking at mosaics, I think, is within the areas that you're burning and the, what I was talking about before, letting the fire take the path that it wants because fire knows where it needs to go and that might sound a bit uh, hippie, but really the fire is going to go on the easiest path, like water will flow down a hill. It will find the, the accumulated fuel that it wants to burn or the accumulated tussocks and it will, will travel through it. Uh, when we start putting in... Uh, more aggressive lighting patterns, then it will burn it all. Okay. It's, it's, uh, it reminds me of the first time I did some uh, burning with um, mob up in the Arafura Swamp, which is where they filmed 10 canoes. You know that? Anyway, was there with Otto Erwin Campy, you know that? Yeah. And he's, you know, doing some burning. I'm like, didn't care. You know, like it's not, it's not about burning every patch, you know, because he knows it'll come back around whenever, whether it be later that year or the next year, and it'll get the, and that's the, the mosaic, and it's not, it's not this formula, that little bit there has to be there, that little bit there has to be there. It's a diversity all over, because you, you know, the fire may trickle through in four different years and bore four, four different spots in the same country. So you've got this diversity woven through everything. Not That's very, you know, when you look at a landscape, you're flying over the plane, you see farm, farm, blocks, farm. That's what we think is management in contemporary society, these little blocks of orderly whatever. And that's that doesn't give you the diversity, you know. Like, and that's what that regrowth diversity, whatever you want to call it, the, the, the metrics and all these sorts of things. It's, and Jack's right; it does it knows where to go itself because it burnt four years ago there. And, you know, there's enough not alive. We need more. It's really funny. Uh, Don Watson. Uh, Don Watson uh, wrote a book called uh, um, Caledonia Australis, where the um, the, the Gippsland pe- Gippsland colonials met the. Um, uh, the Kurnite people, and there's this clash of cultures. Um, one of them was the, um, uh, one of them is a, uh, a culture that didn't have any language, that, and 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 the the, the 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 two two cultures coming together, and it's really interesting. Uh, Don Watson throws all these words about describing Scotland, you know, glens and glens and locks and and burns. Then he comes to the Gippsland country. There's no language to describe the country. He has to use the European language to describe the country. And perhaps perhaps we need to reclaim some of the language, uh, uh, the language to describe this. Because like, you're, what you're painting is, is beautiful. It looks like almost like a Seven Sisters painting of like all these different layers of colour, of fingers going out, but layered with years and years and years and years and of, of, of diversity of, of burns. And, and, uh, and so it's, just, it's really, really complex. But we don't have the language in our mouths. To, we're searching for words to describe this. Language, uh, you're bang on there. You know, all this pushback about romance stuff, every, you know, it's, it's either hunter gatherer or not, <laughs> you know, and it's you're either a farmer or you're not, you know, like, and it's, it's not, it's the limitation here is the capacity for the English language to capture anything outside of what the English have done and experience, you know, and then. We've created that universe, so it there has to be, tr- therefore has to be true, <laughs> you know. And then the only things that are valid are those things that can be valid. Like, what does Deborah's book call a hall of mirrors? You know, where it's a great line. It's something like, um, 
where masturbation is mistaken as active interaction. You know, like the, all, it's a beautiful it's a report from Wild Country. It's a, it's a, you know, and she there, all the mob she works with in Central Australia, Wild Country to them is the same as sick country. You know, the wilderness that we cover today is sick country. And it's a, it's a limitation of language is, is where we're at and the inability to understand what's happening. So we're captured, so colonial Australia is captured by language, by our own language, to be able to, to, to actually express a new narrative out of this, uh, out of the, where we are now. So we need to have fine new language and even just borrowing, old lang- borrowing from old languages and understanding their true meanings. But also we're, we're captured by our own identity as well. So, right, so, so we don't have to find new language. There's a bunch out there. That's why I say yeah. go, go game the old languages, yeah. yeah. There's a curé run, M might not, I don't know, there's a curé run word that just translates. Are we, are we uh, is colonial, is post-colonial, is post-colonial Australia allowed to use those words? Uh, yeah, um, you have to, well, this, is, this is what the problem is, right? It's, if I consider it gaslighting, but I might not have more gaslighting, right? It's like, we'll beat you and lock you up and not let you express culture, but then when we want to come in, we want to quickly borrow that word, you know. If you sit down and actually do what's happening now with the, the treaty process, it's not going to happen tomorrow. Don't expect the answer tomorrow because you want it because suddenly you've had this work realisation that you're not getting it right. Sit down, have the conversation. There's a word in gradually which I just cling through away all the time. It's yinjamata, right? Which means slowly and with respect. And that's the underlying philosophy of gradually. There's similar words across all different models, you know slowly and with respect, which is the antithesis of what society does today. It's like, give me that. I'll either appropriate it or make money off it or something like that. If you sit down, have a conversation, involve mob in what you're doing, then those words will be okay. They'll come out and everyone feels agency and and, and empowered. Those words will come through osmosis. The sharing of knowledge and the sharing of culture then can occur. And it's all mobs. Look, the... Definition of uh, of an initiated Yun man is a humble warrior, and to become a humble warrior, one must learn tolerance and respect, but above all, patience. So, when you speak to elders, and like, and this is a lesson I have to learn all the time because I'm by nature impatient, very impatient, because I see the things that are wrong and want them fixed. But to elders, they don't think like that. They say, well. We've been waiting a long time and we'll pass on our knowledge when we bloody well feel like it. And we think that there's a respectful relationship there in which we can pass it on. And I, I think you hear too often, oh, they don't know their fire knowledge anymore, otherwise they'd have given it to us. Oh, there's an old elder sitting in most communities going, not until you come to me in the right way and I feel that the respect is there. I've been uh, thinking about the term country too and just looking at definitions and you know, you, there's this word landscape which is not appropriate either, is it? It's still this other thing. And the root word for country in say Wiradjuri, for example, also means friend, also means uh, you know, high chief or whatever you want to call them, also means place where you sleep. It, it, it has a depth that isn't just this unit. It has a, a relationship to you and a relationship to, to everything, really. So here, mirroring country, marrying hand together, all the people. That is that relationship that's in the language. We used to have a word for it, but we've demonised it in English. Um, we were peasants once, uh, people of the land, paisan, uh, paisano, in, 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 that's a good, it's a good Latin word, 
pejorative now, isn't it? Pejorative, yeah. You can't be a peasant, you can't be a land. Look, and there's, we, we got rid of that. We got rid of... I got... Who was it? Um, chef. Um, uh, uh, she's up north in Byron Bay. Beautiful woman, Arabella. Arabella. Anyone? 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 Arabella. Beautiful woman. Lawyer, chef. She said to me, mate... You're, you're, you were Aboriginal 400 years ago. You had a relationship with the land. And read the poetry of John Clare, and he has all these beautiful words about all these medicinal plants and his relationship with the country. And that was something that, in, in, in where I come from, uh, Scotland and England, is, is that, we, that my family would have had those, those words and that relationship 400 years ago, but it has been truncated. Um, and there is, there is a deep yearning, and, I, and I, I might speak for some, but a lot of the people in the room, there's a deep yearning to try and find something like that. I like that back in ourselves and back with country. And there's, I think it's, it's, it's purely, it's normal. It's not, it's, it's, it's natural when humans to want that. We lost it. We lost that. And we're now we're coming, now we're back here. We're in another country, the colonial people. And we're having this discussion now, um, about how do we work together with people who haven't lost that? And I think that's where this, that's what's going to lead us into our next discussion. We've got some, um, some, you know, we're going to take a wee break in, the, in, a, in a second, um, and we're going to come back and, and continue this, this conversation. Is that okay with you guys? Yeah, I just I know there's some people crossing their legs, and there's a hot, there's some hot coffee happening outside. Is that okay with everyone? We we'll have a Liz, Liz, how, how long's a break? Just, there's a little lady. Okay, guys, I'd like you back here in uh, 16 minutes and 30 seconds. Uh, look at your watches now and we'll come back. But, but and just thank these two gentlemen for sharing their time this morning. We'll be back. We'll be back shortly. Thank you, gentlemen. We got where you went on to go? Do it. Oh, that, was, that was an unexpected turn there. There's a few unexpected turns. You even did some some deeper philosophy than I was expecting, but yeah, that was good. Yeah. These waters, that name keeps on coming up. Thank you. Give a round of applause. All right, let's launch into this. Um, okay. I'd, um, next to me, next to me is um, um, is Anala Cooper, and she's a Yarrow woman from German and Irish heritage, uh, from. Rubibi Broom in Kimberley in Western Australia. She grew up on Gunjitmara land in southwestern Victoria and has lived on the land of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne for over 25 years. She has a Bachelor of Arts in Drama and Contemporary Dance and a Master's in Human Rights Law, really important, and has long been an advocate for Indigenous rights, access to education and social justice. Anala is a regular contributor. You'll have seen her on ABC News Breakfast and The Drum and is also a director on a number of not-for-profit uh, boards, including Culture's Life, Jesuit Social Services, State Library Victoria and the Adam Briggs Foundation. Anala is currently the director of the Murabarak, uh, of Murabarak, the um, Melbourne Institute for Indigenous Development at the University of Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm exhausted just saying it. How, how are you? Give her a round of applause for coming today. And it's so good. It's so good to have Emily Fowler back. Emily joined us uh, about three years ago. We had a really, really, really good session uh, that day. Uh, and she's a proud Noongar and Wonga woman, um, although she calls Gababanud country home. Currently living on Pekwaran country and works in Aboriginal health, uh, Emily works towards creating culturally safe environment for community to access health care alongside, uh, alongside 
mainstream services. So really, she works with the community to reconnect them with country for better mental and physical health outcomes. And we're going to be hearing from her shortly. Um, I'd just like to start, kick this off. And Ali, you write in your book, um, Model Aboriginal Identity and the Fight for Rights. What, what, let's just go straight to reconciliation. What, what's the end point for reconciliation? That's a good question, Richard. Um, I don't think there's an end point. I don't think we're going to get to a day or a press conference where everyone on this country says, finally, we've achieved it. I think it's something that um, evolves with each community and society and time. And what I mean by that is... The community needs to decide for itself what we're prepared to accept as social justice. You know, things that were acceptable, even though they might have been discriminatory or racist in the past, are not accepted now. And the experiences of elders, um, you know, my dad and people older than me is different than my experience now. So reflecting on... Um, what reconciliation is or when we're going to achieve it, it's, I think, constantly evolving. Um, in your book, uh, you describe, uh, you go through your, um, your grandparents' um, life, um, early life, and you outline in, in it some of the processes they had to do to actually get together, to be, to be together as humans. Can you just talk a little bit about that and, and what the, um, the authorities did to keep them apart? Yeah, so my grandmother, Patricia Jarguin, who was a Yarra woman, um, and my grandfather, this is on my dad's side, my grandfather, John Snowy Dodson, very little is known about him. There are no records. Um, there's one photo of him and my grandmother together on their wedding day, and he appeared what you could describe as white passing, but I look at that picture of him and I immediately, my, my spirit tells me he's black, <laughs> but <clears throat> excuse me, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. Some people in the family think he might have come from Tasmania, so he could have been a Palawa man. Um, other people in the family, there's a range of stories. He was a stowaway that landed in Darwin on some plane from somewhere, but in any case, he made his way to the north of Western Australia and met and fell in love with my grandmother. The Western Australia at the time um, prohibited Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people from being in a relationship. So he was imprisoned in Fremantle um, for 18 months and the charge was cohabiting with a native woman. So whether he was Aboriginal or not, he appeared white enough that they put him in jail. Let's just wind this back. So, so there's a been together. That's right. If one is Aboriginal and one is not Aboriginal or white, then yes. So he, he spent 18 months in the Fremantle prison. This is in the 1940s, so it's still within living memory of my, my elders' memories. Um, uh, Emily, you've got, um, you've got some of the language I've, I've seen. You sh you've bought some letters today, and you've, and, you, and you've got a letter there that you, um, you have. If you could uh, just go out and read out just the top part of the, of the letter. It's, this is like, it's, it's, it, it's, a, it's a record, and the language that's used I, 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 it makes me... Uh, Sorry, I'm ignorant. Can you just read it out? And uh, the, this is the letter about your family. Part of this is um, my grandfather's records from, uh, his, from the Aboriginal Protection Board. 
Um, and in these records is also written permission for my grandfather and my nana, who were both Aboriginal, for permission to get married as well. So they had to write and send off to ask for permission to get married, and it was granted to them so that they, they could. But that was after my nana, who was taken away from my grandfather and sent to a single mum's home to raise her first child and he found her and then after that they did but this is what was sort of given to him as a, a birth certificate because back then if you didn't have a birth certificate you could get one um so this um, native's name so frank shepherd um born and it's got like the dates that they think he's born um it says cast quadroon um and so parentage mother honeybee and it says, alleged to be, and it says CA, so a half cast by CPA, does not think this is correct. Alleged father, Mike Williams, and it says in brackets, white. Um, I've seen my parents' uh, marriage certificates and there's, we're colonial, we're, there's, we don't have that language. They don't discuss skin colour or, or parentage other than you know, what they might have done for a living. That's a, that's a bit of a difference the way that my family has been described and treated to your family. Um, so is, so that, that's, really hard. that's really hard. Is that, is that something that, that, that's part of reconciliation that, we, that I have to come to terms with? So I grew up in a Catholic family and when I first learned as a child about what reconciliation is, basically it was you confess your sins to the priest. If you're really, really sorry, you'll go to heaven and um, if you get a good priest um, they'll give you some advice about how you can rectify the wrong that you've done. You know, a lazy priest might just say 10 Hail Marys, 10 Our Fathers and see you next week. So um, so the good priests, they're actually working out a pathway to, even though, even though to, to, uh, to a religious reconciliation. Yeah, you know, if, if, as a child, you know, and I'd struggle sometimes to come up with a sin, you know. We, we, were you, I have some default ones like I was mean to my brother. Or, and, and, <laughs> were, you, were you naughty? No, of course not. <laughs> um, you know, because so I talk back to mum or, you know, I, I lied about this or whatever. So the, the priest, you know, if you've got someone who's invested in the um, well-being of their community would say, will ask you to reflect upon it. What could you do to make that better? What could you do to apologise? How do you actually rectify the wrong? And so I think reconciliation, the word, is fairly accessible to most white people, particularly white people who are from a Christian faith. And so broadly it can translate to righting wrong. But it's gotten a bit skewed along the way, I think, particularly in how things like reconciliation action plans, which can be useful or can be not useful, are applied... Sometimes people think they're doing reconciliation or contributing to reconciliation, but they're actually not. And now the reconcilia uh, reconciliation action plan, um, uh, who writes them and who implements them? The template is set by Reconciliation Australia after, you know, it's evolved over years of, of what this template is. Um, so if you're an organisation that wants to have a reconciliation action plan, you contact Reconciliation Australia, they send you what the template is and you go through a process. So the people who write it should be people in the organisation or the company or the school or the council or whatever. And, yeah, that is who writes it. Um, 
Reconciliation Australia offer guidance and um, fairly firm um, pieces that must be included as well. So it can be an, a good starting point, but they shouldn't replace proper strategic planning. It's essentially a document that's created to keep uh, organisation accountable mm. for what they say they're going to do. Mm. And they're they say they're going to yeah, employ a certain amount of Indigenous people or that they're, they're going to start including certain aspects of culture in, what, in their day-to-day -day work or, or educate more of their staff. It holds them accountable um, in that respect. But sometimes it's used as, oh, well, we have this now, we've sort of done... Um, we've done our thing. Done our thing, yeah. so it can backfire. So I'd like giving a heart tick to McDonald's. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Anyone here in a workplace that uses a, a RAP, a reconcilia Reconciliation Action Plan? Anyone here? They don't touch a lot of people. Not one hand. Oh, half a hand. Yeah, a couple of, okay. And just a bit of extra context as well, Rich. When it expires um, at the beginning of next year, we're not renewing it. Um, there's been a collective decision taken by Indigenous and non-Indigenous colleagues that... It's sort of run its course, and we're in a place now as an organisation where um, we can do more and do better um, by having a, a whole of university Indigenous strategy. And so that's not to say that they're no good or they're no use, because they are to some organisations who are at a different starting point. Mm -hmm. But the template doesn't fit as much. Um, I don't think in higher education than it does, say, in corporate environments. It was too limiting, really. It was limiting, yeah. In the thing, you don't exit like three things. Five or, pillars. Yeah, something like that. We were, we were already doing more and it was yeah. too limiting. So yeah. we were in a position to. Yeah. I think we had an elevate wrap, which now we've. That's the highest. Uh, yeah, now we've tier. elevated the elevate. Now we've elevate. Like yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. But I think, Richard, as well, the, the words that are not. Um, in reconciliation action plans necessarily around the conversation are wealth and power and if we're going to truly find reconciliation within organisations, places where we are every day of our lives, if there isn't a sharing of wealth and power, you're not, you're not going to get proper reconciliation for past wrongs as well as wrongs that keep happening today. In your book you say, you say that um, the system's not broken. It's actually been designed for failure. Can you explore explore that? Yeah, you know, we hear a lot um, of that phrase that the system is broken when we're reading news reports about the incarceration of our kids, um, land management, fire management, um, all sorts of parts of our lives. But from an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander perspective, it's not, it's not broken at all because it's always been a um, colonial um, design of our eradication and our constant um, diminishment and disempowerment. That's that's how the whole colony was set up. Yeah, and even, I mean, delve too into this because we're down the path, but the definition of rec to reconcile is to repair formerly equitable or uh, friendly relations. Okay. If it ever started, you know. That's right. Yeah. I mean, there's another interpretation to bring two different things into uh, a common place, which is kind of one of those secondary meanings that's probably evolved. But, I mean, even the notion is kind of mythical. <laughs> they say to us, well, we're going to give you things like the traditional owner groups now exist, but you're actually still governed by 
a white man's structure. You know, they give you the money to do what you say you're going to do, but it's still based on what they want to get out of it. It's, you know, we have freedom of speech, but it's still governed by, uh, even sitting up here today talking to you guys, it's, this is very much a, a white man's structure of how we go about things. So how do we move forward? And that's part of the, the voice to parliament and, thing, in, and things is, is our self-determination and, and doing things the way our old people would have done it and how our people would have done it. So it's true meaning behind what we're doing. If the dice is loaded, if everyone knows the dice is loaded and everyone knows the captain lied, um, to paraphrase um, Leonard Cohen, how do we move out of that so the, the wealth and power that has been held by that corrupted, deliberately deliberately designed system, as you, as you put um, in this book, how, how do we move from that? Do we need to re... Is this is what the... Is this what the um, a voice from the heart says is this is where we need is this the new path we have to travel is this what we have to have to actually create a new way of to rebuild i think you know when you talk about the truth-telling aspects and the historical acceptance which is two parts of the reconciliation action plan yeah. stuff that they, they put in place and and part of that is you know hearing you know, accepting what's happened and hearing the stories that you guys hear um, from our people and accepting that that is truth um, and those things happened. But I think it's also taking a step back and going, well, how do we how do we move back to before colonial times and bring those elements forward and actually do it in a meaningful way that's going to last as well? Um, you know, we have things like the voice to parliament and then if that doesn't work, you know, they're talking about the referendum, and whether or not it should go to a referendum, because if it, if it doesn't go through, then they've failed and nothing will happen. But how do we make things last? So we have always lots of programs happen, we put things in place, they fall, they fall away or fall down, and then that's it, they're done. So we need, we need to keep striving to, to hold things in place. You know, people walk away from roles or positions and then they fall away as well. So how do we keep, keep moving forward? Emily, some of the practical work that you're doing in health and what we've been talking about, we've been talking about country, looking after mother, never let mother's skin burn, um, and uh, the, the spirit is in the land. How do you do that? How do you use that, those, those old ideas, the traditional ideas, in your work in healthcare? We have a lot of community involvement. So, you know, part of what we do is understanding the history behind why our people don't like walking through the doors of the hospital because everybody that they know back then probably didn't come home there because of the treatment that they would get. So it's about acknowledging those things and having roles within our hospital. Um, so we have liaison officers that can then bring our old people into hospital and they stay with them in appointments and they talk to them and they tell them and they educate them on what's happening and not just in the doctor's language. So this is, this is in, this in Warrnambool? Yeah. And they're talking, this is the, the Gunjamara people? So, yeah, uh, Gunjamara people and, and uh, Yvonne people on um, land in Warrnambool. Uh, to just go back in the, in, into the history, I think we're, uh, people are familiar with the Umarella Wars, the frontier wars that happened between the colonial people and, the, uh, and you're referring to the Gunjamara warriors. Um, that was, that, was a, that was a really long war. It went on for a long, long time. And the, and the, Urimela, uh, and the, um, the, the, the massacres that happened, um, the, the rivers were running with blood um, and they were, killing, they were killing small children. 
that only happened within the within <clears throat> that only happened in, within you know if we were, if I was to trace my family tree, I could trace those people, and there are people who committed those uh, those murders, those those crimes. Their family's still alive, and those and and the survivors' families are still alive, and so we're working in this community. So that I don't know how anyone, if if someone murdered my, a member of my family, having Scott's blood, I know that the Campbells and the McLeods still don't talk to each other, and that's over five hundred years ago. This is much much shorter time. Um, how, how does it work, how does it work? In, you know, in your in um in in that country where you have country, some of the country is like really badly. I, I don't know the word for it. There's been a massacre there. I don't know want to go back there. Well, you grew up over in that country, so you mm. probably understand that dynamic in the culture probably a bit more than I would. Yeah, I, I did my growing up in Port Ferry as well as Codrington, which um, Codrington was a slave owner, I found out many years later. That's a, a little spot of farmland in between Yambuck and, and Tirandara. And there is a... I feel a feeling when I'm there. It's a feeling of connection because it's where I grew up. But there's a strong, there's a strong feeling in the wind. I think in that part of the country that maybe it is the Gunditjmara warriors. Well, it has to be. Um, but because what you're saying, Richard, so the the atrocities and the massacres and the wars that happened on that country. And I'm not an expert in this stuff. This is just from me. You, it take it would take a lot to um, heal and change the um, feeling on that country. It's not unsettling to me. It's not something that makes me um, feel, you know, a bad way. But it's um, a feeling that strengthens my connection to that place. And I feel um, that I have that connection of home to that part of the country as well as in the community. We're helping people, uh, and this, these, these are really, you know, the Gunditjmara people have amazing stories, and we'll, we'll get back to that in a minute, and they're, they're really, really strong, powerful people. When, in your, in your work, how, how do you help them connect with country and, 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 um, and make it a physically and an emotionally healing process? One of the, I guess, the great things is that sometimes, um, as Indigenous people, we're, we're not lucky to grow up growing up here in Apollo Bay, and he connected me to Geelong and to Wadhawong um, and went on camps, and that was the only cultural aspects I had because my mum didn't know anything. So we get to learn things, and we have people come through that don't know things, and we get to educate them while they're in hospital. But just having a yarn and making them feel safe, you know, we're able to do smoking ceremonies in the hospital when someone passes so we're able to give a family the option if they want to culturally um you know do cultural aspects for the for their for their loved ones they can do that when babies are born you know if dads want to sit in a room and, and play the dig to to their babies to welcome them to the world they can do that like so we're, we're really lucky to be always constantly growing and the hospital that i work at is is quite open to all of those things those elements so yeah Cool. I'm just going. Just going back um, uh, up in North and Darwin, Larrakia, um country. There are streets that are named after people who, in, in, only in the uh, in the twentieth century, were still um, acquiring land and doing that through force and violence. And so that, that we're now coming down to like only a number of generations. How do we? How do we? How do we colonials? How do we, what do we need to do? What do, what do we do 
Because how do we? What do we? How do we say sorry? How? What do we? You know, what do we do? I don't know. What, I don't know what to do. I'm sorry. Um, you do know what to do. You just got to get to that place. Um, it's not only in Darwin; it's all over the place where streets or monuments or you know other things within towns are named after um, colonial criminals. Or think about the last time you saw a sign that said Boundary Road. Why is it called Boundary Road? So, first of all, everyone has a device in, that fits in the palm of their hand. Start there, right? If you're wondering why something's called Boundary Road, why is Boundary Road in whichever town called that? Um, who was so-and-so? So everyone can start somewhere because we've all got a device that has all the information ever generated by humans in it. So... Um, that, that's a really good starting point, and I think when it comes to that specific thing, you know, naming streets and towns after, after colonial criminals, uh, people and communities need to come to a place where they acknowledge that our culture as white Australia is to honour and uphold the people who committed crimes, and that that is how this country was founded. And that that's not very good, is it, Richard? <laughs> that there needs to be an acknowledgement that this is part of our culture, that we like to name things and build monuments and statues and name you know, whole shires and local government areas after these white men who committed crimes and coming to the truth of the fact that that's not a good way for our country as a whole to proceed is the starting point. The truth-telling of why that's, um, we should have shame around that. And with both our kids similar age, how, much, how often are they taught this in school? Are there human laws taught in schools here? Maybe I don't know, but there's a whole, you're talking about, you know, the McCulloughs and the whatever, you know. I'm sure that some of that history is at least known outside of them, it's maybe talked about. The people still don't know there were wars. People yeah. just, you know, think it was, oh, here you go, have our land. <laughs> mm. I don't know what it is. But they, they don't know that Aboriginal people fought and died mm. to defend. And what do you fight and die for? Your country, something mm. that's yours, or that, that you want to um, not let someone else have, you know? Yeah. And this is just a hidden history, and schools are just producing more and more ignorance mm. to this because, what is it, it's considered, uh, what was Andrew Bolt, you know, the, the font of all wisdom? <laughs> <laughs> you know, considered uh, not truth or cultural wars or whatever that it is. You know? mm. And infuri infuriating as it is, it's good to read Andrew Bolt so that we know what these people are thinking. So we can, you know, try and, and change it. But um, the other thing about, you know, truth-telling and, and acknowledging the way at a voice, we still have a voice. What is needed is quiet and listening. So I think when it comes to the voice to parliament as well as um, any other platform or, or environment where we as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people are speaking, humility and quiet is what you and others can do, which you're doing really well. There's a, a beautiful <laughs> called, called Dadiri, if anyone's heard of that. Um, and it's about What's it name again? Dadiri. It's about quiet still awareness um, for, and it's, it was written by a woman and almost as a gift to to everybody 
to be able to take this Aboriginal practice of, of being quiet and still and, and acknowledging and listening to what's around you. Um, and I run a, a sort of a reconciliation group called What What Nanda, meaning Come Together. And at the start of every meeting, we read this poem. And we take it in turns to read paragraphs and we go around and we read that because the non-Indigenous people in the room feel like it puts them in a really good headspace to be able to sit down and listen to the conversations that we're about to have. Uh, or a statement from the heart or clothing the gap or just, um, you know, the First Peoples Assembly. They come and they speak to us, we put on events and, and it's a really good way for the community to come together and, and to learn from each other and things. But that poem is, is a beautiful poem written by... Um, she was this year's... Uh, Evelyn Araluen? Yeah, no. Oh. Um, Miriam... Rose, she oh. was the elder of the year this year or last year, but yeah, beautiful poem. Um, and you can just Google it and it should come up as well. Uh, I was having a discussion with a family member, and they are terrified uh, uh about uh, a voice to parliament. They say it's going to change everything, we're going to have a, a third, a third house. Um, there's going to be a lot of Aboriginal control over everything addressed. Um, in your book. Yeah, why people are scared that everything's going to get taken away from them. It's not. <laughs> this is what happened with um, native title legislation. Western Australia, uh, the Premier at the time and the media was disgraceful and feral about how they marketed what native title legislation was going to take away from people. Um, fear is... Um, it, it's... It shouldn't be part of the engagement with us um, or, I think, with the voice to parliament. It was Malcolm Turnbull, when he was Prime Minister, who purposely um, said it would be a third chamber of parliament. He knew it wouldn't be. He purposely said it would be to create drama and division. And now that he's no longer Prime Minister, so he's saying, oh, you know what, I was wrong about that. I support the voice to parliament. That's how the system works. They do one thing, they go one way while they're in politics, and then when they've got a retirement package, and then they go, oh, actually, I didn't mean that back then. I've changed my mind and reflected. I was terrified when I heard John Howard say, basically, I do support a voice to parliament. Uh-oh. <laughs> that was, that was terrifying when he said that. So, look, um, yeah, fear is... If, if, if non-Indigenous white and white people feel fear when they're considering engaging with us. That's not our problem. That's a white person's problem and that's a piece of reflection that white people need to do themselves. Is our existential fear of, of Australia uh, of being invaded or being taken away from us because of this original sin? America's got slavery. We've got colonisation. We, 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 and sla thank you, we, we have slavery, and but also that um, that violent uh, dispossession of the violent acquisition. Is that is that our dirty secret? Is that something that sits in the heart of us that that perhaps this process could heal? The scabs that are being picked are our scabs. Yeah, and I think the fear is that people who hold that fear um, that it's that they are going to be treated the way that white people treat Aboriginal people like homosexuality, that a man who is um, a homophobe fears that he is going to be treated the way he treats women. That's what it is, I think. You've written some words on this. 
Do you want me to read it out? Thank you. The hesitation and fear surrounding the surfacing of truths stem from how this disrupts the status quo. The status, privileges and freedoms experienced by non-Indigenous, mainly white people in this country, which are protected at all costs. This is evident through, the countless, exa through countless examples, including the consistent failure by the Commonwealth to meet closing the gap targets, substandard levels of health care, the blowing up of sacred sites by mining companies and the persistent incarceration of our people that results in shameful and devastating numbers of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people dying in custody. We rise, Yimajalam, in Yaru language. Then we are pulled back down. It cannot be said enough that the systems created by Australia are not broken. Rather, they have been intentionally designed to diminish us, humiliate us, imprison us, get rid of us. What's our job? What do we do? Help us. Sometimes I, just, sometimes I, you know, I, I think I'm doing the right thing, but we've got we've got the um, the voice to parliament's going to come. Uh, it's going to be um, servicing. There's going to be a, um, a referendum. What do we do? What message do we take to our friends, to, to my family who who've got this fear? Educate yourself. Mm -hmm. I think you know that fear comes from not being educated on what it actually means, what it represents, and you know the 1967 referendum was the highest voting of yes in this country, and that was to. Include us in the census as people to be counted, and so you know the message to go home is to educate yourself. If you're unsure about something, Google it. Like she said, there's there's answers there. Just not Sky News. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you know an Aboriginal person and you feel comfortable to talk to them, talk to them. Like that. That's what. What I try and achieve in Warrnambool is creating a space for, for non-Indigenous people to feel safe enough to come and ask questions, to, to be like, is this word appropriate? Let's, you know, we, the word racism, white people go, oh, no, I don't want to be associated with, with that word at all. But if you're unsure about something and you don't want to use inappropriate language, like, come and ask us. Mm. Let's have a conversation. And change your algorithm in your social media. Like, if you're only following certain kinds of commentators, um, you, you miss out on a whole lot of other conversation voices. That's not a difficult thing to do. And then you look, you, you see what they're following and, and who they're linked with and, and so on. And that can make a huge difference, I think. And that's not hard on our phones all the time. I remember uh, Victor saying one time, I was sick of being in the passenger seat. Why don't you let us drive the car for a while? Because you know? they're too scared we're going to crash, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> but we've been driving car for 80,000 years. Yeah. So <laughs> trust also needs yeah. to be part of um, building a more respectful relationship. Jack, got any words? Just enjoying that, Richard. On, on what specific... Like, look, I think people are terrified of speaking, of saying the wrong thing which is, uh, to a degree, understandable because it's, it comes from a place of ignorance. So you're scared of things you don't understand. I don't think white Australians in particular understand um, Indigenous culture or the way we interact or it's a really different way of being. And it, it in fact, is far more inclusive. In, we would all say that, I think, of our communities and the way it looks after itself. Um, and I'm yet to find an elder who wants to be exclusive of non-Indigenous peoples of our culture. It's not really, once you get past that point of ignorance, there's no need for the fear. Um, but you've got to get past that point of ignorance.
You can actually, there's actually a little book you can buy. Um, uh, um, and it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good read. Seriously, it's, it's a, it'll be the best 10, the best 10 bucks plus a few more you'll get. And uh, I, was, I was reading this around Melbourne and I almost walked into a tram. I was, I was, I was, the way she writes about um, Port Ferry um, is, just, is just beautiful. Uh, your turn now, uh, now, folks. Um, we've got um, lovely Tess has got a microphone. She's going to take that from Jack. She's got that from Jack. That one there. Thank you. <laughs> it just and what I'd love you to do is just to mention your name and where you're from uh, for the for the record, and then we'll get you uh, to ask a question to anyone up here. We've got some most amazing talent, some beautiful, powerful people. Ask them a question. Be with us shortly. And <laughs> if you just put up your hand, Tess will come. Tess will find you. Have you got any, um, any, any queries? Um, Tess, we just go and uh, grab that lady over there. No, say grab her in, in, in a very safe, non-contact manner. What was the name of the book again? Finding the, Finding the Heart of the Nation by Thomas Mayer, for the record. And either you've read this book? I have not. Yeah, I, have, I haven't read it word for word, but I've got the book and I've, I know what it is. And providing the context is really important. When we're about to you know, embark into this referendum and we're, we're already seeing the beginnings of the campaign toward um, the question and the vote, Having context is really important because, I mean, we're doing a bit of hands up today, aren't we, Richard? Um, hands up, anyone who's read the Australian Constitution. Right? Yeah, but you're a, hang on, but you're a Dodson. So, yeah, 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 come on. I read it in the because my father said, "You read the Constitution." I read it um, <laughs> when I embarked on my Masters of Human Rights Law because I thought I need to know what our Constitution is if I'm going to, you know. I'm not embarking on being a lawyer, but it's, I mean, even in civics, it, we don't really have civics in schools anymore. It sort of emerges in other ways. But it, without an understanding of what the Constitution is, um, what it can do and what it can't do, heading into a referendum like this, we're already hearing lots of people, especially Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, saying, we don't know what this means. What, what is the voice going to do and what is it not going to do? So Thomas Mayer and others are able to provide... Um, history and context, and Megan Davis as well has got a book that's just come out recently with, um, I can't remember the co-author, that it's called um, Everything You Need to Know About the Uluru Statement from the Heart. It's an easy read, it gives timelines, it gives um, context as to why the Uluru Statement ordered voice, treaty and truth in that order. Um, and they're not, they're not uh, um, heavy and difficult to read, which is the good thing. You can pick it up and flick through it and put it down and pick it up again and 
yeah, start to get more of an... It's important to note that the Uluru Statement from the Heart was actually written for... Oh, you need the microphone. Sorry. <laughs> the Uluru Thank Statement you. from the Heart was actually written for use. It was written for the people of Australia to understand. It wasn't written for the politicians or, you know, the things. It was actually written for every Australian to be able to read and understand why it's important and what, it, what it's supposed to mean for us. So it's really important that, you know, you take the time to read it and understand that it's for... For all Australians. Who's, who's read the statement? Oh, it is a, it's a beautiful piece of writing. As a writer, I've, that's on our fridge. And the, it, the sentiment and the generosity, it's an amazing document. And the, and the bit that gets me is the children are the gift to the nation. That to me, that what we give you as our children and within them the culture, that to me, that to me is, is the most generous, beautiful gift I've, that 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 makes that yeah. My, my, I've got goose flesh. That's beautiful. Thank you. Question here, Pete. You made a, a statement that I thought was quite good about how this forum is a European style forum. So it made me wonder what what would you do instead of this. <coughs> I guess it's similar to what we would call like a yarning circle. Um, so, you know, you sit sit around and, and have just open dialogue, open conversation. I guess uh, when you're doing something a bit larger, it, it comes down to this style of format. But for, for us, when we do, you know, our meetings and we speak with elders or people in the community to understand things, we sit around and, and have a yarn. So it's, it's not this formal sort of a setting. Um, and, and it's open for everybody to, to talk and contribute because as Indigenous people, I, I feel, I sit here, I represent me and my thoughts and my feelings and I don't represent every Indigenous person and how they think and feel. So it's really important that, you know, we understand that, that we, we like to have sort of a bit more of a... So maybe, you know, you could have smaller gatherings um, but more of them. Um, so, you, you know, you're getting to have... Uh, conversations and everybody that's sitting around gets to contribute in some way. Uh, hi, I'm Gareth. I'm from Melbourne, uh, formerly of Toronto. Um, it's interesting, even that last conversation, I've been taking, uh, I've started a foundation called Life Again and uh, taking one of the things we've done early days, uh, not realising, I'm trying to get men away from, it was always men back in the day, trying to get men out of, uh, uh, to, in a positive health way, to get them away from the city. So we started taking them out back. And when we took them out back uh, into Central Australia, between Uluru and Alice Springs, it was interesting, in, in, in light of what you've just said, was um, we'd always sit around fires at night and talk and I would always try to find out from the men that day what was their experience. And my mate Johnny Little, who I worked with out there for 10 years, one from the first time I ever went out there, he said, why don't you ask me what you got out of your day? And, uh, out of, and so I said, what did you get out of it? And from that stage, we've developed uh, and we're starting to go around Victoria now. Um, this conversation is no change without understanding because unless we go out as white people on country and visit 
and see Aboriginals on country. Johnny Little always told me it's fake colour and white colour, because black is not a colour of our skin, it's a colour of our blood. And I think that's a really important story because white fellas, no matter how much we read about um, black fellas today, we still can't pull it, pull it all together unless we dig really deeply. And just for the academics, um, uh, Professor Barry Judd is on our board. Um, so um, for the Melbourne Union people, they have, um, Aboriginal people on country here now yeah, and in the city. Yeah, and there are... And you don't have to go into that. I, I, I'm and not... I'll say the same thing. We, we're also looking at doing city trips too because people see Aboriginals but they don't know they're Aboriginals. Why is that, do you think? Because they haven't asked. Or they, don't, they think the colour of the skin uh, means they're not an Aboriginal. Why do they think that, though? Because they don't know. They've never been taught. Well, hang on. What, what are we taught in school and through the government and through the media about what Aboriginal people look like? Um, I went to school a long time ago, so I wasn't taught anything in school back in those days. So, if you see a picture of, of an Aboriginal person from Arnhem Land, um, they look different to an Aboriginal person from Tasmania, and they always have, pre-colonisation. So the diversity of our peoples is overlooked because of the way education systems, the government and the media choose purposely to portray who we are. Yeah, no, one of the things I say in all of that is we, when we take people out on country, we try to immerse them in history so that they understand that you might have 300 different languages or 300 tribes, um, groups, whatever, so that uh, they're all different. Um, I think we're coming along. I think we've come a long way um, from where we were. When you think '67, uh, it was before Aboriginals being got the vote. I want to just shift gears slightly. What what you described um, about yarding in a campfire is by no accident. That is that's a cultural thing, as Em's pointed out. But a human day starts by greeting grandfather son and being grateful. Sounds very woke, doesn't it? So telling the grandfather what you're grateful for and thanking for all the things that you have and for the people around you and for the mother. And the day ends with a reflection. So sitting around and talking about what you've learned, what what has been important to you. And I think um, we don't do that, do we? Like, it's pretty extraordinary. I know it sounds like you know, some sort of new age meditation or something, but in fact, if you're not constantly reflecting within a community of what's been important to you and how you've changed, uh, you probably won't. There's a chap over there with glasses. It looks like he's a designer, judging by them. Oh, hang on a minute. He, he is a designer. What's your name, sorry? My name is Joe. Where are you from? I come from uh, Bayside, My a question is, everything that's been mentioned by all of you, I've been exposed to within the last nine, four, fifty, six years of my life. Um, there's, there's words that have been mentioned, uh, reconciliation and native title. 
Native title, as you know, it's the lowest form of land tenure. And what I got told about reconciliation was two people who had done something wrong. With Could we get rid of reconciliation and native title? Because a lot of people do feel that that's the path, well, actually, a lot of Australians feel that's the pathway to for betterness. Um, I think it's you're starting from maybe the wrong point. Yeah, I think um, reconciliation can serve a purpose, but I agree with you there's better words, which um, include um, social justice or just justice. Um, and I, I think, I think, like I said before, the word reconciliation can be accessible to a lot of people. Uh, it can do some things, but we need to be doing more and doing better. And Em just said before, you know, about the word racism. We need to use that more and name things for what they are. And people, as well as organisations, steer away from the word racism because there's this idea that if we use that word, we acknowledge that it exists. So there needs to be um, a certain courage within organisations. Oh, and that brings me to... Um, the word bravery and brave. Because this year the reconciliation theme was uh, be brave, make change. I think they got it wrong. I think that was a... Um, change? Okay. I have a friend who um, went to Afghanistan as a soldier and he his job was to be the decoy. So he ran across a field, a, ran across the desert to distract the Afghan soldiers... He was the decoy. He ran and they saw him and they started, you know, the attack that way, but really it was happening over here. He was honourably discharged with the Medal of Valour and he now gets a pension and lives his life. That is bravery. I'm sorry, if you as a white person think you're being brave because you made acknowledgement of country, get out of here. That's the, like the most, the most, the baseline gesture of respect and you think you're being brave, I just think they completely missed the mark with the theme this year because that week there was white people going all over the place saying, I'm brave because I put the flag up. I'm brave because I... No, sorry, that is not bravery at all. They missed it. And bravery is different to courage. You don't need to be brave to engage with us. You know, the, the bravery implies that there's a fear, which we talked about before. They're the wrong words. If I look into English uh, as a writer, um, bravery comes from bravado, of, of, being, of actually reacting, and the word courage comes from the, the French word uh, heart, core, courage, from the heart. Two different words, two different meanings. And that's another thing that you can do, Joe. Is it Joe? and Richard, you were asking what can we do, is change the language. And you know, that starts with our families and our workplaces every day, where if someone says something, you can back it up, follow it up and say, do you mean this word? And those little changes make a difference. I like that. I just learned something from you, everyone, today, the, the courage. It's not brave, it's courage. It's, fr it's from the heart. Okay. I learned something. Thank you. Because there's one good outcome anyway. 
We've got. We've only got a few minutes left in this session. So, Tess, if you want to grab that microphone, push it around the room. Last chance to put your hands up. Make uh, make a brief statement, very brief, or a question to these, this amazing pool of talent. Hi, um, my name is Sue. I live on Gabbardineering and I work for and on behalf of Tungaran Vic, Tungaran Country. Um, I, to follow up from this issue of, of bravery or courage, I've been watching the Uluruk uh, Tree Telling Commission and I wonder at what point we, the settler state, need to start telling truth as well because it, it seems to me that those stories... The generosity in those stories that I'm seeing coming out of that commission, is there a role for us to stand up and look at our own history and confront our own truth and our own reality and speak that back to our own community? Well, it has to happen. I mean, none of this works without telling the truth. And but just, just a, a little tangent, I mean, the whole shit show is set up on a lie, you know? Like, if you look, the British love their laws, right? If you look into the way that land can be acquired under the British legal system, there's four ways, inheriting, buying, conquering, or you take up unoccupied land, right? And if you conquer, the, the trick here, it's what the English did when they conquered in uh, India, is you have to take the local laws and customs and wrap them into the way that you govern the land, right? And this place here, if you just take unoccupied land, it's considered a terra nullia, so there's no one here. So the whole thing built on a myth. There are local laws, customs, languages. None of that's wrapped into to today's running of society, is it? You know. So this whole thing is one big lie, and we're building. And in academic discourse, you know, you try and falsify your pillars of assumption. You know, There's the whole rub, the whole thing falls down by just unpicking that lie. So we're just building lies upon lies upon lies, and even a truth on a lie is a lie. You know, and we need to actually look in and just tell the truth. Then we, we then we can get into this in reconciliation, or whatever like that. But without the truth, and this is where it's just not happening. So if we actually instead of using if, instead of using the word um, settler, we use the word conqueror. Conqueror would then take on the the, uh, the existing laws and the, and the traditions and language, and that would probably come back to our first conversation about land land management, working with the land. You'd have all the words for water, for fire, for for, for smoke, for rain, etc., for animals, for plants, and then have all those interactive those uh, interactive systems. You then have an existing way of handling the land. Well, yeah, you know, you reframe it. I mean, I, I used to live British invasion. You can see some people just get triggered, you know, and they just might listen to another word saying invasion, 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 invasion. It's an invasion, you know, and came in and conquered, you know, but didn't then follow up with applying the law, the way the way they just seem mythically erased people. And the words invasion together make people uncomfortable because the other things that go with the word British are nice cups of tea and politeness. So when, when those two words come together, people do, you know, react because, um, and they should react and, and feel uncomfortable and then within that discomfort bring out the truths. Yeah. But also realise that as Aboriginal people, I'm British, my dad's white from England, so, you know, when we're talking about that, we're still talking about our own families as well, so, you know, don't be scared, you know. I'm excited about where we're heading in these types of conversations, you know. In healthcare, we say we need healthy country to have healthy people and we need healthy people to have a healthy country, and that's kind of the baseline of what we work at. Mm -hmm. yeah. Just one last question. How have you 
raise um, uh, issues like ritual, like you need to have the poem at the start of your meeting in the morning. You talked about can you use the microphone? So, yeah, a couple of you talked about ritual and how that can happen. Um, I mean, we now have lots of knowledge in the country, and one of the issues it, it can be okay, but it can get a bit stable. And then I've also, you know, you've also mentioned that statement of the heart, which is really remarkable because it is so heartfelt. How can we, it seems to me rituals are really important to bring kind of big parts of ourselves into the moment and to, I don't know, reconcile these incredible conflicts that have been in the past and have been in the present. Do you have any advice about how can we create rituals off the heart and the head that might help all of us to go forward and make honest conversations? Do you have ideas? I think the... Uh the acknowledgement of country does become stale to a degree. So, I mean, organisations have set wording for them. Same meaning, you know, we could rattle them off in their heads, couldn't we, a million times, they're almost identical. Um, and the whole idea is to acknowledge the place or the people, right? But if you just verbatim saying some words, well, it doesn't really mean much to you because you just shit scared of getting the words wrong, right? <laughs> That's not what we're here to do. We're here to acknowledge the country. We're here to acknowledge the custodians of that country. So say it from the heart, get the intent right, and maybe learn something about that bit of country and those people and share it so that it's not verbatim. It's something true to that place. And you're right, rituals, and I don't think as communities we have much ritual as a collective, and I think it's to detriment because... Uh, it brings people together and you learn and share experience. So I'm not saying everyone has to follow you in ritual to wake up and welcome grandfather and thank you for everything we've got, but we're a rich place. We've got a shitload to be grateful for. This place is extraordinary, right? And if you acknowledge that, we'll look after we'll look after its old people and we'll look after the place itself. Um, so I think I agree with you. I think ritual is really important, but I don't think it needs to be something so scary that has to happen in the desert with Oka. It's about this. There's a really great thing called um, by Jay Kennedy. He talks about acknowledgement to countries and watching countries and what it actually means in a, in a kind of a comical way. But he talks about, you know, it being our home, and if you come into our home, you don't just shit all over the place, basically. You ask permission to, to go to the kitchen to make a cup of tea and you respect um, the home and, and the things that are in it and those things. So it's a, it's a really interesting way of, of relearning what uh, a welcome actually means for us and what was used for and those types of things. I agree with Jack about, um, you know, we don't really have rituals that enrich us or um, deepen our connections in the right ways. But as you were talking, I was thinking about other rituals that White Australia has created that sustain, like Boxing Day Test, the ritual of what you do in Bay 13, Melbourne Cup, the ritual of what you do, you take your little bottle on the train and the car park picnic, 
there are all these other rituals that don't respect with the place that we are, that have become so ingrained in white Australia, even the, the evolution of paying respect on Anzac Day, which has become now this white nationalist pride type of ritual, they are the ones that need changing. The rituals that we have are not, are not respectful and they're not... Not healthy. They're not healthy, exactly right. We're coming to the end. Do you want to just want to um, put a cap on that? And, um... Oh no, I agree. We, there are rituals all through everything that we do, you know, but they're exclusive. You know, the hands that goes locked out from black people, you know, fighting to get it in there, you know, to recognise frontier wars or even Aboriginal soldiers yeah. who fought and died before they were actually people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it, we are ritualistic beings. We have even rituals of when you go into someone's house and respect and. All these sorts of things. So I think you're right. It's a way of, to me, ritual is a way of encoding appropriate behaviour and respecting where you are and the situation. And we can do that. But the thing is, no one listens to black people, you know, because they're portrayed in X, Y, and Z, and because of, we're too afraid to tell the truth and all this sort of stuff. So none of that appropriate ritual gets woven in. And then we start to see things like appropriate care for country, you know, healthier people, appropriate care for people, appropriate. And it's not hard. Aboriginal people will do it, but just, you know, in your mouth. Respectfully, slowly, let's unlock those stories and we'll become richer for it. Mm -hmm. I learned something the other day. I went to um, uh, Budgebim, which is the old uh, Lake Condesite, uh, Tayrak. And um, the people there, they've been wanting to put a cafe on the place for for a generation. And and I've been, uh, I was introduced them 25 years ago by a white fellow called uh, John Fenton. Who um he you know basically turned his his land back into bushland, and the other day I went there and there's now a, a visitor information centre, a cafe, and young blokes like um, Bryden Saunders taking people on uh, about onto country, showing people eel traps. You know they all know the eel story. I think we all know the eel story. Six and a half thousand years of aquaculture, and there you learn stuff. You learn you learn that um, what Michael was saying before that they that they they weren't nomad. That people aren't nomadic. They they fished. They made little fires. They made little fires so the grasshoppers would go and jump into the into the um, the water and feed the eels, and then they take the eels, and they'd, they'd smoke them over um, over parasitic plant grows next to gum trees. Thank you, Cherry Ballard. I love Exocarpus. Thank you so much, uh, Cherry Ballard. And they would, and they would, and they would uh, take the eels, and they would, um, and they would uh, trade the eels for uh, greenstone from from Mount William, um, which I think that's in uh, yeah, Mount William. Uh, yeah. Which country is that? Is that, is that that's in your? You, yeah, I think so. Yeah, country out near, out near Macedon, and that, and there are stories coming out of the Broken Hill country. Um, that oh, you're the, you're the you're the crazy you're the crazy mob that goes and smokes eels, and and so they told me this. I'm allowed to tell people that because that's what I'm here. That's what they they want me to do. They want me to tell a story, um, and that's what our job is. I think for colonial people to understand, you can go there, you can learn, you can eat eel with them, and food, sitting down with people and having a conversation is a really good way of doing it. Uh, I know that you know Jack's dad opened up the opened up Australia back to that um, through Dark Emu. Um, we, we we are eating, sitting down, having those conversations. It's almost you're almost describing like a CWA style: sitting down, having a cup of tea, eating together, and telling some stories. 
and just getting to know people. Is that, is that where we're heading? I'm kind of liking that. I'm kind of liking that. Sitting down, sitting down, having a cup of tea, uh, you know, and, and eating something, and even eating eel at Budge Bim. It's open to the public. You can go there, tell your friends about it. Tell your friends about what you've learned today. Tell your friends about the learnings today. Tell them about courage. Tell them about learning, sitting down, reconciliation. That is a process. Tell everyone. That's that's our job today. That's that's our job. It's our job. And um, and I just remember um, um, Deb Cheatham. Her uh, uh Requiem. She says a line, but sung in language. It says a line, we, Gunjitmara people, we, we are your future. Like, I am responsible for that, what's going on. And that changed me. And hopefully those little stories, one by one, those words will change um, the heart and the soul of the nation till we um, come out with something different than we've got now because obviously it's broken. We had a good day today. It's time. Some of you got to get back on the road. We've got lunch happening somewhere. Um, we've had a few speakers um, uh, come in today. We've had um, Michael Sean Fletcher, Dr. Jack Pascoe, um, Emily Fowler, and Anala Cooper. Give them a big round of applause. Good. I love hearing an applause die. Um, the lady who puts this together is the lovely Liz Water. She also baked the cakes. Give her an applause. To the hang on, I haven't finished. I haven't finished. And to all the beautiful volunteers who are from Apollo Bay for Winter Wild it is such a special, beautiful community. Um, for the people who the who the locals, I reckon. I just want to give everyone a round of applause. I feel just full of love. All yours, Liz. <laughs>